welcome to another kind of mind in this episode acom talks with vivek tawari author of the fifth beetle this was such a fun listen phoebe i'm bummed that i couldn't make it but i'm glad that you got to speak with mr tawari oh so am i daphne yeah he's great he is and i love his like just genuine passion for this semi niche <laughs> yeah interest i love it's that completely sincere yeah mm-hmm so why don't you tell our listeners about The Fifth Beetle? Well, I would love to. The Fifth Beetle is a graphic novel written by Mr. Tuari and illustrated by Andrew C. Robinson and Kyle Baker. It is the story of Brian Epstein meeting and managing the Beatles from 1962 to 1967. And it's truly beautiful, not yeah. just aesthetically, but the way the story unfolds is very artful, very sensitive, very engrossing, and it just feels good to have a cool piece of art about the Beatles that is truly different from all the usual biographies and videos. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend this as an addition to your Beatles collection, and it was a genuine pleasure speaking to Mr. Vivek Tiwari. He was so generous and pleasant, and it was a great experience for me. And, and you finally you got to talk about the all-important topic of how to pronounce Brian's name. Yes, we did. Okay, you may have gotten a hint <laughs> <laughs> if you were listening carefully. But much as I do when I'm around my family, I will switch back and forth. From Epstein to Epstein, oh, yeah. depending on the circumstance. Seems to be kind of what Brian and his family did to a certain extent. So Exactly. So Mr. Tawari is in the process of getting this awesome graphic novel transmutated into a television show. Yes. He could not tell Phoebe hardly a thing about it for secrecy reasons. Mm -hmm. so that was too bad she tried but uh i know he's so mysterious but i'm really yeah. looking forward to that project so but yeah I, i'm really excited to see how it comes to life that'll be super cool i'm very excited about that so here you go everybody here is vivek tawari and phoebe in conversation enjoy People are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles at Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind.
so first of all, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are celebrating the 10 year anniversary of the book. Um, not so much a re-release as a new edition because it, it, it never went out of print per se, but we uh, but we stopped printing the last the original run and now have a special new edition with a, a bunch of new features. The thing that I'm most excited about, I would say, is it, it has a playlist. It has a soundtrack that it comes with, um, which was literally not something we could do 10 years ago. But but now we have a QR code that you can launch um, a Spotify playlist. And we've also copied the songs in case you're not a Spotify user uh, so that you can listen along. And I, I've included liner notes that explain sort of where I view certain songs going in the book. Uh, so that you can literally kind of hear the soundtrack that I imagined the book um, unfolding to. And wow. that, it's, it's funny, I, I, I always find it a little cheesy when directors and creators say this, but but this really is the vision that I always wanted people to have. For, you know, it's like, this is the definitive version of the book. Um, and here I am saying it myself. But, That's but fantastic. it really is, you know, it's, um, it's obviously a music book. It's a book yeah. about the Beatles manager. And, you know, one of the limitations of that is, is books don't sing. So finally, we we um, we have a version of the book that that literally can sing. So we're excited about it. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. It's, uh, you know, it's rare that people get to fully realize their artistic vision. So congrats on that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is, uh, it's amazing that we're even, you know, that we're, talking about the the graphic novel 10 years later it's just such a such a joyful thing right I mean, you know I, I knew when I put it out that it was um it was a story I believed that it was a story that was timeless but um but I would would not have imagined that that 10 years on it would have won the awards that it did and it would have warranted a special special edition release um so it's uh it's really gratifying so again thank you for having me on on the show to talk about it I'm, I'm really proud of it yeah, I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I can't believe that this is the first time I've read it. Although the the timing is very good since you know it's coinciding with the with the new edition, but honestly, I really really love this. You know, I I've, I've read many graphic novels, and I have to say that this one was incredibly evocative. Like I actually heard a soundtrack as I turned every page, you know, as I read it, I, I heard the voices, I heard the, um, all the sound effects and I saw the animation in, in my head. So amazing. Yeah. Really incredibly oh. well done. I mean that. Thank you for that. You know, when, when I wrote the, um, the graphic novel script that the, that the artists, um, Andrew Robinson and Kyle Baker drew the, painted the pages to, you know, I include it was it was in many ways like a, a film or TV script because I I included music cues. You know, I said these are the music that I imagine um, playing over these scenes because Andrew and Kyle are you know huge music lovers as well. So I thought that would inspire them as they as they did their painting, and um, so it really is kind of a, a a joyful thing to be able to share that element with the world, and and it really um, it's gratifying to hear. That it worked for you, you know. That's that we're really hoping that that others will have that experience. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, as I was reading it, one of my big questions was going to be at the end: Did you write this as a screenplay, um, or did you write it as a you know as a series of storyboards? Yeah. So look, I I always imagined it to be very filmic, if you will. 
Um, but you know, the 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 short answer to your question is no. I mean, I really always wrote it as a graphic novel. Um, you know, I'm a huge comic book geek. Uh, you know, I, I often say that I, I learned to read by reading comics. My mm -hmm. earliest memories of reading are are reading Asterix and Tintin with my mom. Um, so so my love of comics runs very deep. And uh, and I do know, obviously, there's a lot of crossover between comics and film and television these days. I mean, comic book movies yeah. and comic book TV shows are are such a thing right now. Um, and I and I know that there are a lot of people that make graphic novels when what they really want to do is make a film or they make a graphic <laughs> novel as a series, as you said, a series of storyboards in order to make a film. That is not what we did here. I I, I believe that, first of all, I have too much respect for the medium. Yeah. Um, and I think they are different mediums. There's things you can do on the page that you can't do um, on the screen. You know, there's a, a page yeah. towards the end of the book, one of my favorite pages in, in the in the graphic novel that in which Brian's at a party at a Sergeant Pepper's party. And, you know, he, he at one point tried to go to, he, he was a drama school. And so he was very theatrical yeah. and he bursts into sort of a riff on the Henry V Band of Brothers speech. And he talks about being a Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band of Brothers. And, you know, the way we've drawn that page is, is, uh, is sort of, in, in some ways, it's like a movie poster as opposed to a movie. Mm -hmm. It's got surreal elements around it. And like, there's, n I, I don't think that page could be done properly on a film, in, in, yeah. a, in a film. And, you know, we, we designed that for the graphic novel medium. And we, you know, I know we'll talk later about our film and TV um, plans for this. But, and, you know, when we get to that stage, we have ideas for that that will be different from the graphic novel. You know, and, sure. and I really do believe that people who who write graphic novels in order to make a film, comic fans see right through that. You know, you, you, th mm -hmm. those books rarely are are strong, and so we we really wanted this to stand on its own. Um, although we we, as I said, we do have plans to adapt it, and and we're excited about that as well. Yeah, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Like the artwork in here is, I mean, it's not just attractive; it's very inventive, very creative, and. Like I said, it's it's just kind of very immersive. I, I was really into it. Um, so I'd like to talk about a few things, like about the story. Yes, please. Um, so I loved the dreamlike quality of it all. It it feels almost like it's not quite reality. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Obviously, I loved how focused it was on Brian. And I also, because the Beatles is a story we've all heard a million times. I loved that we weren't bogged down in like dates and facts. <laughs> you know, as somebody who consumes a lot of Beatles media and has a Beatles podcast, reads a lot of Beatles books, <laughs> it's yeah. always nice to see parts of the story from a different perspective. It's hard to get that in a lot of, you know, like a lot of books that are written about the Beatles. They're all from the same sort of point of view like an outsider's point of view so this really felt like it was brian's world and we were experiencing his life as he sort of moved through the beatles universe but it wasn't really about the beatles it was about brian yeah you know th thank you for saying all of that i mean that was really always my intention um you know is to create something I mean, it's part of why we chose, you know, going back to the, the, the conversation about graphic novels, it's part of why we chose that medium to tell it. 
uh, you know, we we wanted it to be poetic and and visual and 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 you know, hopefully beautiful. Hopefully, people will find it beautiful as you did. Um, mm -hmm. Every decision that we made, though, to to deviate from something historical or from a fact or be a little surreal or hallucinogenic in a in a moment that actually there's a historical narrative <laughs> yeah. to it, was was done very consciously. Um, you know, I'm a huge Beatles fan, but I'm a, I have a particular um, passion and interest in, in Brian Epstein, whose life has been so inspiring to me. And I've literally been studying Brian's life for about 30 years. You know, if you uh, if you um, hang out in dorky Beatles circles that uh, <laughs> I say that with fondness, that's a compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because um, I'm part of those circles. You know, they'll oh, tell yeah. you, oh, Vivek is the Brian Epstein guy. Like, you know, <laughs> the guy that, you know, I, I'm I'm quite possibly, you know, the world's leading Brian Epstein historian, you know, and, and that's just because of decades of research that I've done in his life. So, you know, a Beatles historian might read elements of this book and, and say, oh, well, they they played with the history here. That didn't happen just like that. And, and I know that, like, you know, I, I knew that every time we did something that was quite surreal or delved into a hallucin hallucinogenic moment, mm -hmm. um, it was, we knew what we were doing. You know, we weren't like, hey, let's do that so we don't have to worry about the history. It was actually, there was there is a, a comment on the history um, that, that in, in why we made those choices. So we kind of, you know, just for, for those historians, uh, in the audience, like, you know, you can rest easy that we, um, that anytime we did something there was, there was a reason for it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't out of ignorance for the story. Um, but yes, we, we did want to tell it in a way that was more concerned with the poetry than with the facts per se. You know, yeah. I want people to, to come out having what I believe is an inspiring human story. The world knows the Beatles story quite well at this point. And yes, I'm a gigantic Beatles fan, and but I always thought of the Beatles in some way as being kind of a Trojan horse, that it, it's, it mm -hmm. will be what brings you into the story. And of course, you know, he was their manager. You get these wonderful stories about how he got them a record deal when no one wanted to sign them, how he convinced Ed Sullivan to book the band in the U.S. when a British band had never made an impact over here. Like all those Beatles stories are in there, but ultimately... You know, it's the story of Brian and, and he was gay and Jewish and from Liverpool and 26 years old, you yeah. know, for when he first discovers the band. And so he was the ultimate outsider. You know, it's a felony to be gay. Anti-Semitism is rampant in the world. Mm -hmm. Liverpool before the Beatles is a dirty port town without anything cultural. No, no one's looking to Liverpool for the next big musical act. There was a great vibrant music scene, but nobody outside of Liverpool knew that. And um, and Brian was 26, you know, he was he was all practically a child, you know, and, and you've got in Brian, this, this gay Jewish 26 year old kid from Liverpool saying, I found a local rock and roll band who are going to be bigger than Elvis, who are going to elevate pop music into an art form. You know, people laughed at him. They said, not only is that dream stupid, but people like you don't do things like that. And ultimately, that was what was really inspiring to me. You know, while I am none of those things that Brian are, and I don't pretend to have had the obstacles and or the degree of obstacles yeah. in my life that Brian had, you know, I'm a first generation American. My parents were immigrants and my family was originally from India. And like people who believed in me thought I would become a doctor or an engineer. 
and yeah. everybody else thought I would work in a deli or drive a taxi cab. You know, that, those were my career options. You know, I was not supposed to write graphic novels and produce Broadway musicals and, and film and TV, which are the other things I do. You know, and so I thought if the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool could bring the world the Beatles, you know, why couldn't a weirdo Indian kid from New York's Lower East Side pursue his dreams of a life in music? So ultimately that's the story I wanted to tell, an inspiring human story about chasing your dreams. Um, you know, I believe if there's one message to this book, it's that no dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream. And so that's really the story I, I hope people walk away with. That's great. That definitely answers the question of why Brian. I think he deserves that, the title, The Fifth Beatle. Yeah. So were you initially were you initially brought in through the Beatles to Brian or did Brian kind of catch your eye first and then you came in through him into the Beatles? Yeah, no, it was, it was really, uh, you know, my experience with the Brian Epstein story is, is not, not unlike what, you know, how I'd like people to come into this. As I said, the Beatles are sort of the mm -hmm. Trojan horse, you know, I, uh, I joke around that I was, you know, a Beatles fan from before birth. Um, because my parents were Beatles fans and my, my sure. mom listened to the Beatles in the womb when I was in the womb. Um, you know, so I was definitely going through my life, a gigantic Beatles fan from, from day one. And, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was expected to be a doctor or an engineer. And if I wasn't going to do that, then maybe I would join the family business, mm -hmm. which is food products and finance. And, you know, I found myself going to business school uh, possibly on a track to join the family business, but dreaming of a life in music. I was Very relatable. <laughs> yeah, I can know? see that. Why Brian would appeal to you then. Exactly, exactly. And I was at the Wharton School of Business in the early 90s, and they didn't have any resources for a student like me who wanted to study the business of the arts. They do now, but back mm. in, in the early 90s, that wasn't a thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I had to do this research on my own. And that, you know, and initially I was like, I, you know, I thought that Brian and the Beatles wrote and then rewrote the rules of the pop music business. So I got into it to study the Beatles. I was like, I'm going to study Brian Epstein's life because I, because I want, I want to be in the business of, of the arts and the business of music. So let me study the business of the Beatles and who, how better to learn that than through the head of their business, through their manager. But that's really why I got into it. I'll be the first to admit I didn't care at all about his personal story or his personal life. Mm -hmm. And it was when I uncovered those elements of his life that I ironically were like, oh my gosh, that's the part that's really inspiring. Yes, the business stories are inspiring too, but it's the it's overcoming the personal struggles. That's what what really struck a deep chord for me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I think that makes you the perfect candidate to tell his story. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I'd like to talk about a few of the choices that you made in the graphic novel yeah. here that I really do appreciate. Probably like most readers, when I started reading, I, you know, I got to Moxie and I'm like, who's Moxie? You know? Yeah. But I loved though the choices of Moxie and Dill. I thought you know, using those sort of simple composite characters to show different pockets of Brian's life were very effective. And by choosing like 
just these two simple characters that kind of streamlined the narrative for me and helped yeah. focus on like the themes rather than like I said before getting bogged down in like the details and the events to me this is just my interpretation but like I felt like Moxie represented uh, not just the work of the other people involved like employees and staff and the female labor that you know goes behind yeah. big organizations like this yeah but also kind of like an alternative lifestyle for Brian like maybe like an easier life like a girlfriend or a wife that Brian knew he didn't really want or that wouldn't really fulfill him but must have been a temptation to him at times not just for the allure of of being accepted socially but also you know to have somebody to care for him and and love yeah. him yeah listen i mean you 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 nailed it i mean that that those are all the reasons why we um we created the character of moxie and i i don't think i'm giving away too much i mean a, a quick google search will tell you that there was no one in the beetle circle named moxie and, um, you know, but, you know, going back to what I said earlier about knowing the history, there is nothing that Moxie in the book does or feels um, or represents that isn't based on on um, the actions or emotions or, you know, or, or what somebody in real life did for for Brian. Yeah. She's she is a composite of four real life human beings, um, Wendy Hansen. Joanne Peterson, who is now Joanne Newfield, um, Peter Brown, and Alistair Taylor. Like between those four people from real history, nice. Moxie, Moxie represents all of those folks. But she also thematically represents exactly what you said, sort of a life that that Brian couldn't have. In, in, and and tragically so, you know, because he was gay and he, you know, he could he was gay at a time where it was a felony and you know two two women even hold, holding hands walking down the street in Liverpool could have been thrown in jail and that's how bad it was so you know on one hand you know she he represented you know sort of this this wonderful he was handsome and well dressed and smart and you know in in many ways he was the perfect perfect per, you know he, yeah. she was ideal um, you know, and, and that's tragic too, because she had sort of a crush on him, but it was, it was a very innocent sort of unrequited in the sense that she, she knew that he was gay and, and, that, that, and he was her boss and yeah. she was not going to be with him. But on the same token, like he knew that she admired him and, and he knew yeah. that partially for business, he, she was his, his underling, but you know, his, his direct, he was, he was her supervisor, but also she was a she and he, that wasn't, that wasn't his kind of love. And yeah. And it was very tragic. So there's a there's a lot of nuance um, to to Moxie that again is um, is yes, it's our creation, and yes, we're being poetic. And I think Moxie also benefits from the medium of graphic novel. But it's also everything, as I said, that she does is based on research or based on conversations I had with real people who told me this is really how I felt and really how it happened. So she's not, you know, in some ways, yes, she's our creation, but in some ways she, mm -hmm. she is also from history. Yeah, she is real people. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was it was very well done, very sensitive. And yeah. that, to me, that's way more effective than just spelling everything out all the time. Thanks. And you, you might be surprised about this, but Diz really is not that much of a composite. There really was a Diz. 
and um, and he did almost everything that this the Diz in my book does is, is what he this did. one person actually did. I mean, he he's there's a couple things in there that are brought in from some other trash trash hustlers. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Diz is actually not so much a composite as you may you may be shocked and and dismayed to hear to learn that. Um, but there really was a, a a Diz Gillespie, you know, it was a it was a nickname, um, you know, but uh, but that that's a that's a real character. Yeah. And I will tell you, Nat Weiss um, was somebody who became a very good mm -hmm. friend of mine, and 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 was really um, a lot of my research from this came from Nat. And uh, one of the most chilling moments I had was when Matt showed Nat, excuse me, showed me in his archives a blackmail letter that that Diz had um had handed Brian he actually showed me the letter mm -hmm. and um and you know when I uh when I asked Nat Nat was usually very warm and effusive and willing to talk to me about anything he was so wonder you know as we became friends he was really willing to open up to me and when I asked kind of like what happened Nat sort of looked at me he got a little quiet and he was like oh I, I took care of him and I was like, what do oh, you mean? And he was like, I, I just, you know, I took care of him. And that was that. And he was like, clearly didn't want to talk about it anymore. And I was like, you paid him off or you put out a hit on him? Or what? <laughs> oh my God. You know, like, that's creepy. You know, but not, that was not to a T. He was warm and lovely, but like, you also <laughs> mess around with not whites. Wow. You know, he, was a, he was fiercely protective of his best friend, and that was Brian. But he was also the Beatles' U.S. attorney, and he was, you know, an amazing attorney and fiercely protective of his clients. But, um, you know, I, again, I don't want to give away too much uh, in the book, but we've, you know, we've tried to capture that spirit in the character of Nat as well um, in that in that sequence that that you may have thought was a was a composite created sequence when Nat uh, sort of takes care of Diz. But um, but that's that's actually based on something Nat actually told me. So <laughs> there you go. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah everything stuff. everything I've read about Nat Weiss is terrific. Like he sounds like a great person <laughs> or, you know, like a fascinating person. Yeah, um, and, and in the book, he's a great character as well. So I really enjoyed him. Thank actually, you. His character. Yeah. Thank you. He was a, uh, a, a, a massive uh, source of, of reference. And, and really that's, that's a, a crude way of putting it. Cause he, he was a friend, you know, I, I met him because I was doing research on Brian and, you know, we talked for a while and I was asking him all these business questions. He was based in New York, which is home for me. So I had the good fortune of, of actually sitting down with him, you know, so we were face to face. And then after a while he was like, you know, if you really want to know what makes Brian tick, you have to understand his personal life. And that's when he started opening up to me about that. And, and as we discussed earlier, he was totally right. That was the part that really struck a very deep chord for me. So I uh, I hope that Nat passed away, unfortunately. He did get to see a galley of the book before it came out, but he he didn't get to see the final product. Um, but I, I hope that he would have been very pleased. And I, I think he might've been particularly pleased that here we are 10 years on, um, you know, releasing an anniversary edition and still still celebrating it. Wow, that is fantastic. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought uh, Diz, even being a real person, and like you said, like being a real character, but also kind of being a, a composite or just sort of like representing all the other yeah. <laughs> boyfriends, hookups and, and yeah. blackmailers and just untrustworthy people. Um, but also I thought he was just a great 
sort of vehicle for the sort of looming fear of being discovered, being ruined, you know, and like not only losing Brian, losing his career, but also the fear that he would endanger the Beatles as well. It's just so much to live with. That, and then that is, that is, uh, at the heart of Brian's, um, Brian's distress, you know, he, he, ever, he was so ambitious and really wanted to move mountains in service of the Beatles dreams and, and kept pushing the boundaries of the music industry so that the Beatles could achieve their artistic dreams, you know, do all sorts of crazy things. What seemed crazy at the time, like put sitars, uh, and Eastern instrumentation into their music, mm-hmm. and put out a, a Sergeant Pepper's concept record with a, with an orchestra. I mean, these were were radical moves that the record label wasn't keen on. It was expensive, and it was you know the Beatles were were a boy band. They were a hugely successful boy band, and to this day, if you if you manage a boy band, you you know you stick to the template. You know <laughs> you, yeah. you milk it for what it's worth. I mean, that's what the business wanted out of the Beatles. You know, but Brian, there's a line in the book where Brian says you know, you focus on playing your instruments and, and I'll play the music industry as my instrument. And, and that's really what he did. And again, really why I think he, he was like a member of the band he was, and his instrument was the business. He pushed the boundaries of what the music industry could do and, and, and thought it was standard in the same way that the Beatles pushed the boundaries of what a pop song was. Um, that, and, but, but, Every, you know, to your to your initial point, every time he achieved a greater amount of success for the band, he was thrust more into the public eye, which yeah. risked his homosexuality coming to light, which would literally in his home country have gotten him thrown in jail. And uh, and also, you know, at the time would not have um, have reflected well on the Beatles, you know, not not that they care. Yeah, they yeah. cry very deeply, but that's that's what the world was like. You know, I, I often say one of the tragedies is Brian was really one of the architects of the psychedelic era and really con- helped to bring about the summer of love. But like, you know, he he had to spend that summer in- indoors in the closet, you know, yeah. or he would have gotten sunburned, you know, because that that's <laughs> there was no free love for Brian Epstein, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so. you did, especially in the earlier part of the book, you did a really... Uh, really great artful job of showing Brian's vision for the Beatles and what he brought to them in a, in a way that I'll be honest, like I haven't, that hasn't really been brought out for me in all the books that I've read. Um, His vision for the Beatles, not just like with the suits, but the whole, like you're going to be international stars. Like that's such a big idea that I hadn't really thought of before. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, he, he, I I mentioned it earlier, like he had these two proclamations, the Beatles are going to be bigger than Elvis, which, which at the time was absurd. Like no, no, (laughs) not being bigger than Elvis. Right. Yeah. Uh, And, and and he's very famous for that. People, people, or or at least famous in Beatles circles, people know that quote. But the other thing that I think is so much more interesting is that the Beatles are going to elevate pop music into an art form. You know, people yeah. were like, what does that even mean? That doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> and then like less than 10 years after he said it, you know, Sergeant Peppers came yeah. out and in particular the song A Day in the Life. And he was like, that's what I meant. You know, and, and along the way, he said, like, I don't quite know how to describe what I mean. But when Sergeant Peppers came out, he's like, that's it. That's what I meant. When, you know, when all those years ago, I said they would elevate pop music into an art form while A Day in the Life is a pop song. But that's it's a piece of art, you know? 
And and Brian also, you know, he worked in uh, in his parents' his, his family record store. And, you know, so he was and he had like, you know, he had a, a, a board where he would pick top hits of the day and, you know, this Ray Charles song and this Elvis song. And he was very good at picking the hits. So he understood pop music. But, you know, when he went home at night, he listened to jazz and classical. You know, that that's actually what with the music that he listened to. And then eventually the Beatles. But like he always said from the beginning that the, the Beatles were like the great jazz and classical composers that he loved. You yeah. know, and at the time, uh, rock bands didn't write their own songs. You know, they played other people's songs. You know, Elvis very famously didn't write his own material, you know. Sure. And so that that's what pop stars were expected to do. And but the Beatles wrote their own music, their own songs. And Brian believed that, you know, in the same way that hundreds of years after their death, we are still covering, if you will, Beethoven and Mozart songs. Orchestras are still playing the works of Beethoven and Mozart. Brian believed that hundreds of years after the Beatles were gone, people would still be covering Beatles songs. And, you know, and, and that's why, like, you know, here we are decades later and people yeah. often ask me, oh, would Brian have been surprised that, like, you know, the Beatles just put out a, a new song on, you know, using technology and and uh, and people are still still into the Beatles and still love those old songs and the Red and Blue album are coming out again. You know, I would have said like, you know, Brian wouldn't be impressed. Come back to me two hundred years from now. <laughs> yeah. years from now, and and then he wouldn't be impressed either. He would have said, "I told you so." You know. Yeah, and he'd be right. He he'd be right. And and honestly, I think the thing that he most brought to the band, what most made him the most successful manager for them, is that vision. Like he somehow saw that when he saw them playing at, at a basement club at the Cavern in Liverpool in 1961, when they were smoking on stage, drinking on stage, being <laughs> around with the audience, totally unprofessional. Somehow he saw in that band, a band that who, who wrote songs that were, were about love and belonging, messages that were universal and important. And in yeah. particular, as a gay man who had to, to use a Beatles line, hide his own love away, you know, that was a very powerful message. And he he believed that's a message that's timeless and that, that I can help them spread. And it will be, it will still be an important message hundreds of years from now. I mean, it's really remarkable. And that's why, even though the story is so tragic in many ways, it's so inspiring to me. Yes. And, you know, speaking of Sergeant Pepper and All You Need Is Love, and Brian's vision of, you know, spreading love and and pop music as an art form. Again, really artfully done in the book, how it, it seemed as if it was kind of maybe the only the only way maybe to to bring some light into Brian's passing is that it feels in the book as if he has reached a peak. That's when he leaves you know, the earth when he sort of realized his vision completely. And, you know, like his vision sort of actualized at that moment where he slips away. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the ending sequence, I mean, it definitely is a slipping away, as you put it, it's, it is a downward spiral that he goes down, but he never lost vision for the Beatles and, and never, um, you know, never ceased to, push those boundaries of the industry, as I said it earlier, you know, in all the research I've done, you know, and and in, in conversations with the actual band members, they said they would never have left Brian. There's a lot of talk about that. O'Brien was mm -hmm. depressed at the end of his life because 
the Beatles were going to leave him, you know, and, uh, and, and that's, that's just absurd. Like the Beatles, the Beatles didn't think that, I mean, yes, he was depressed at the end of his life, but for other reasons, not because he thought the Beatles would leave him. And there's this other comment that people say that like, oh, you know, once the Beatles stopped touring, there was like nothing for Brian to do. I'm like, well, that's absurd. And, and I hope that in a 2023 perspective, we all can understand that. I mean, you know, pop stars do so many things. There's so much to manage. You know, it's like, you know, oh, so I guess like when, you know, NSYNC stopped touring, there was nothing for Justin Timberlake's manager to do. I mean, <laughs> like, it's a, that's ridiculous. You know, like, of course, there was a million things to do. Um, and, and, you know, the same was true for Brian. Like, in fact, you know, and, and it's dramatized in the book, you'll see that, you know, then the Philippines sequence, um, you know, touring was was grueling. You know, in fact, I, I suspect it was quite the opposite. I suspect when the Beatles said they're going to stop touring, he probably breathed a sigh of relief that he could focus on other things for them. Yeah. So there's a lot of misconceptions about that slipping away period, but but he was slipping away. There's no no doubt about that. But it was really more because here's this guy who, you know, at the end of his life, he was 32. He was still very young. And he'd helped, you know, the Beatles spread this great message of love and bring all this love into the world. And yet he himself never had a proper boyfriend or couldn't be open about his own love. You know, that that side yeah. of it, you know, it, it it was crushing. Yeah. And 1967 was when homosexuality was decriminalized in Britain. Is that is that true? I, ironically, I ironically, several just a handful of months after Brian passed away. Um, although it's worth noting that, like, you know, yes, technically, a sure. few months after he died, the law was changed, but it's not like the minute the law was changed, it was all of a sudden acceptable. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, yes, so, Stonewall so, still so it still took happens. a long time, and, and we're still we're still coping with it today. But but yes, ironically, a handful of months after he passed, the um the so-called Oscar Wilde laws were repealed in the UK. So mm -hmm. it was would no longer been a felony, but it still it still wouldn't have been easy, put it that way. Yeah. But kind of a turning of the page, perhaps. For sure. No, for yeah. sure. Sure. I mean, it's it is a great, it's another one of the ironic and tragic things about Brian's life was that he didn't live to see that day. And 32 is so young. Oh. It's 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as uh, uh, Daphne, my co-host, and I have talked about, you know, th it's not even that unusual to not have a partner by thirty-two. <laughs> I mean, thirty-two is pretty young, so yeah, absolutely. He, you know, he had a lot of potential left in his life. He had a lot of life ahead of him. There's yes. no question about that. Yeah, and you know, he was starting to spend more time in the United States and more time with Nat. And listen, over here, it's not like being homosexual was total, was easy either, but it was more open than it was in London. It was more yeah. open in New York City uh, at the time. And, and I could have seen him getting more involved in that scene and maybe even being an activist eventually. And there's just, you could imagine, given his smarts and his drive and his eloquence, you could really have just seen him, you know. Thriving, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles, who also were activists and eloquent and, yeah. you know, used their music to to achieve causes, to, you know, fight for causes. Yeah. You can imagine them teaming up with Brian for something really extraordinary. But yeah, uh, for sure. Not not to be. It was not to be. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we have his legacy, though. We do have his legacy. That's true. And speaking of legacy, so I have one more question about uh, about the book. Yes. So I'd like to talk briefly about your choice for, and I hope it's okay to, so you know, we're sort of spoiling things, but it, 
We're still gonna everybody's still gonna buy the book. I hope so, please. <laughs> yes. Um Thank but you. if it's okay, I yeah, would I would like to talk about your choice of of Brian basically handing the keys, handing Paul the keys to the kingdom. Hmm. Um that was very unexpected, but but very powerful. And you know, reading it now, it's it seems to have even sort of extra significance considering everything that's happened since. Paul's yeah. definitely the patriarch of the of the Beatles empire probably has been since 1967 but like definitely as time goes on we see more and more that he is the one who who keeps the Beatles flame alive so I'd like to ask you what brought you to that choice and also did that upset anyone <laughs> that you're aware of like have you gotten any any feedback from Beatles fans about it no, look, I mean, you, you, you basically just answered your own question. I mean, you know, the, and, um, you know, I, I won't spoil it entirely for people who haven't read the book, but, but that, but the, the moment that, um, that Phoebe's referring to is in a, is in a sort of hallucinatory dream sequence. So it's not as though I'm trying to suggest historically that Brian literally like, you know, signed a contract. Oh, right handed over the you know the the actual running of the business but but it's a, a sort of dream it's a it's a fanciful dream sequence in which this happens um but it's all based on again all based on on elements of truth and 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 Phoebe you just said it yourself like in those days Paul was the one that was paying the most attention to the business he was clearly the one that was like crafting the legacy John originally had been the um sort of leader of the band if you will like when the Beatles first started you know he mm -hmm. he was band leader and he brought paul on board you know an early name for the band was johnny and the moon dogs so it was mm -hmm. like john and his band you know but um but that was starting to shift and um john was going through a lot of personal stuff he was splitting with cynthia and he was getting together with yoko and you know he was just um a little all over the place maybe one might argue sure. and even if you believed he wasn't all over the place um, his focus was certainly not on the business or the legacy of the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, you know, the one that was paying most attention to that was, was Paul. And, you know, Paul was largely responsible for putting together, you know, the, the mecha me mechanics of Abbey Road, their last real um, studio record. And Brian was, was, even though he was at the end of his life slipping away, as we discussed, he was very sharp about the Beatles and he, ne he never faltered in his responsibilities for the band. And he saw that, he saw what Paul was doing and representing for the Beatles. So really, I'm just kind of like stating a fact, like Brian said, you're the one that's been paying attention to this. Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, it's unfair for you to have that burden, but, you know, the Beatles have a deep legacy and, and Paul, you're going to be in charge of it. And, and, you know, it's an, it's another element where he was right. Uh, you yeah. know, but, but, um, but even then, you know, any Beatles historian will tell you that even then in 1967, it was clear that, that Paul was the one that was, 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 was steering the ship, the Beatles ship, if you will. And that was hard for Paul. Like, you know, the, the band didn't survive after Brian's death, you know, he, he couldn't keep them together, but, but, um, but, you know, here we are decades later and he's, you know, spearheading the production of a new Beatles track uh using technology to to you know bring back an old john lennon demo and yeah you know, it's paul i mean obviously ringo was deeply involved in that as well but 
but you know paul is a credited producer on that track for a reason you know he, yeah. he won and and to your other question did I, did i get in any uh any upset from fans the truth is no and and it's because of these reasons that we're discussing now like beatles fans and beatles historians know that i was really just poetically recounting a truth uh, an yeah. actual you know, is a poetic interpretation of an actual fact um and so you know that might be a, a fact that might make some people uncomfortable or might <laughs> some people may not be happy about but <laughs> but it's a fact i mean that that just yeah. is the truth you know yeah so so there you have it that's great well tangential to that so i'd like to move into just like a few uh questions about brian since you are the leading brian epstein <laughs> authority um one thing that i know that fans especially younger fans are really interested in is in the last let's say six months of brian's life or maybe like post touring you know like 1967 end of 66 yep it definitely seems like from everything that we read that Brian was much closer to Paul, like assuming he was, you know, closer to John throughout most of his time with the Beatles that, you know, for some of the reasons you stated, either because John had become a bit of a homebody, you know, didn't, didn't really mingle too much except with, you know, maybe the other Beatles in the studio or at Paul's house or whatever, um, didn't go out a lot and didn't socially interact with brian quite as much and paul partially by virtue of him living in london of him being active in the you know yeah social scene at the time um developed much more of a friendly relationship with brian like not just as a client but like you know as a yeah. friend yeah for sure i'd like you to talk about that at all if you can because i oh. know that's a, a, a real big area of interest uh, yeah. to a lot of people. Yeah, so so I mean everything that you said is true, you know, but but to say, you know, he was close with John in the earlier days and closer with Paul in the latter days, um, you know, if that's kind of the heart of the question, it it would be like I, I would say that's not true or it would depend on on how you define close. Okay. You know, because um, you know, Brian from the very beginning when he first started managing the band in 61, you know, one of the things that he, that that was quite radical about his approach was that he believed all four of them were very individual. I mean, he said, like, I think that each of you has something special in you that can that we should that can be should be brought to the top. And he didn't manufacture this in the way that that current day boy bands are often manufactured. <laughs> but kind of that's what he was talking about. John was sort of the artsy one, and and George was the shy one, and Ringo was very funny and outspoken, and Paul yeah. was handsome. And, and you know, it's like, you know, again, like he didn't he didn't sit down with the band and say, you're going to be the shy one, you're going to be the artsy one. But yeah. he, he did say, you guys all have your own personalities. And rather than having one leader of the band, uh, who's going to get all the press attention? We're going to spread it out because you all have something special about you, and 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 that was at the very beginning. I mean, it's in the book. It's dramatized in the very first meeting that he has with the band. Yeah, and that and that attitude of of understanding that they all had different personalities um, stuck with Brian until the day he died. So I would say that he was close with each member of them in his own way. Uh, throughout the, their the arcs of their lives and careers, and yes, John was more present, so that might have been more 
FaceTime um, in the <laughs> early days, but I wouldn't say he was any less close to John in the latter days. It was just a different relationship. Um, and the same thing with Paul. Paul became more of the face of the business and more involved in that. And so as a result of that, he and Brian were having more conversations, but I wouldn't necessarily say that made them closer, if that makes sense. Okay. You know, I, th I think his closeness to each member of the band, um, you know, was unique from the beginning and was unique and, and yeah. only in each member it, it grew, you know, I think um, in the conversations that I, I had with, um, with, uh, you know, with Paul and Ringo, unfortunately, I, you know, I, I didn't get to know John before he passed. I was a uh, I was a child, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't get to have a conversation with George either, George Harrison. Um, but you know, they they've said that they were very close. They loved Brian, but they all had their own type of closeness, their own different relationship with him. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also had like a a sort of a maybe a trivial question, but. I was wondering if you knew what exactly Brian was taking. Um, obviously, you know, yeah, his uh, his pill consumption is you know part of his story. Do you yeah. know what what exactly he was on? And I'm sure it was made probably more than one thing. Yeah. So so I um I can tell you the three three of the main things that were found in his bloodstream um, were was triptazole, Librium, and Carbitol. And I hope I'm pronouncing those drugs correctly. Um, but there were there were quite a few other things as well, unfortunately. I mean, it, he was he was taking a lot of stuff. He was taking something to, you know, help him sleep at night and something to help him wake up in the mornings. I mean, he was definitely getting addicted to pills and he was seeing a doctor in Liverpool and a doctor in London and a doctor in New yeah. York, you know, and um, you know, and this is the thing, like, you know, he there's a lot of questions about did Brian commit suicide? And, you know, everyone I spoke to and all my research suggested that he did not in the sense that he did not take a hundred pills and leave a suicide letter and commit suicide. There, there was no suicide letter. He was a very um, sharp businessman and he didn't have a will. He didn't put his affairs in order. And he's the kind of guy that would have if he was going to hmm, suicide. Okay. Um, and his father had passed away not long before and he was very close with his mom and he just wouldn't have put his mother through losing both her husband and her eldest son. You know, there's just so many things to suggest that he didn't commit suicide, um, for lack of another way of saying it, in the strictest of definitions. Sure. However, he was depressed. He was a smart guy. And he had to know that by taking all these pills, he was slowly poisoning himself. And, and I actually spoke to, um, to somebody who worked on Brian's autopsy. And, uh, and you know, it was... The cause of death was technically at the time what's called an accidental overdose, which basically means um, taking too many pills over a prolonged period of time, not taking like 100 the night before, but like oh, slowly poisoning yourself over months and months and months and months. And and three of the main ones, again, to get back to the micro of your question, were um, triptazole, Librium, and Carbitol. But, um, but there were others and it was going on for a very long period of time. And again, Brian bringing a smart guy knowing he had to know that he was slowly poisoning himself. So I think, you know, poetically speaking, I think that is a kind of suicide. And and that is not, please, I, I know people, I, I've been involved with, with, unfortunately, with suicide, and I'm not trying to speak light of it. I'm not trying to turn it into something mm -hmm. poetic. It is a very real and tragic thing. Um, but, uh, 
but you know, I think there were, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And okay. you know, there are elements of Brian, he had to know what he was doing, but it wasn't uh it wasn't a let me let me down a hundred, you know, of the of this pill which will kill me overnight. It was was not that quite that. Okay. Um those three drugs that you mentioned, not I don't know any of those don't sound familiar to me. Are they all barbiturates? They're all no, they they do a variety of different things. And and I okay. um, I don't want I'm not a doctor and I don't want to get sure, it sure, wrong. Sure. Um, but they, but they're prescription pills, you know, and, and they they weren't. I mean, it, it was not like he was doing cocaine and heroin and like had was on yeah. a bender. It was prescription pills. It was things that a doctor would say, take this to when you're anxious, take this when you're mm-hmm. sad, and and quite frankly, take this to help cure your homosexual impulses. You oh know, my goodness, that, yes. That, oh that geez, was, that was a big part of of uh, you know another element of Brian's tragedy is is he was being prescribed pills that were supposedly going to help cure him of his homosexuality. Um, sure. Again, yes. On, on this podcast, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't remember what exactly each one of those drugs uh, was for, and I don't want to get it wrong. Sure. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering, like, what in the world are these Doctor Feelgoods giving this man? For yeah, look, <laughs> my, you know, my my dad was a doctor, and and I have an immense amount of respect for the medical profession. So I, I'm not trying to speak. Same. Like it was Dr. Also, you know, it well. was a different time. And, <laughs> And they didn't quite know what, you know, what long-term effects were. And to be fair to the doctors, they didn't know about each other. They didn't know that there was another, there was a yeah. guy in London and Liverpool and et, et cetera. Didn't have centralized but, medical but records. They were, they were playing, <laughs> they were saying the same thing. They, I mean, I, you know, they, they were, they were also handing out from, from a certain playbook. And as much as I respect the medical profession, I think probably some of his doctors were, were a little irresponsible if I'm, if I may say so, that's my my own interpretation of it that that's my opinion but but i i do think that they were also doing what they thought was best but you know that was that was sure they, they thought it would be best to cure him of his homosexuality and that's fucking preposterous if you exactly exactly yeah it's 60 years ago so and like in medicine yeah. every 20 years we look back and think what we did 20 years ago was barbaric so yeah and, and this is and, and it's it's not okay. I want to be very clear. I'm not for the for a second suggesting that it's okay what they what they did. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I would like you to speak on the pronunciation of Brian's last okay. name. <laughs> Most controversial question you've asked yet. I know. I know. I yeah, I look. actually have been calling him Brian Epstein for a really long time because I was informed that that was the proper way to say his name and then um and then i saw you speak very eloquently actually on why we should pronounce it brian epstein so I, i'd just like you to speak on that for a minute yeah listen there, there's there's no lack of uh of interview footage and if you do a google and youtube search where you can find lots of footage of epstein and you can even uh see footage of a secretary picking up a phone saying epstein and brian not correcting them so there's all of that um, but but just to be put it very plain and simple, the family, the Epstein family, pronounced mm-hmm. their last name Epstein, and that comes from Brian's mom. So I believe if Brian's mother says the correct way to pronounce our family's name is Epstein, then that's probably the correct way to say the name. You know, so yeah. So I'll just leave it at that. I mean, yes, Brian didn't always correct people. And there may, I think there are nuances to that. I mean, in 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 the days that, you know, when Brian was doing, um, you know, when Brian was working for the band, 
Jews did not work extensively in the music industry. That has obviously changed, but that was the case back then. And so if somebody said, Mr. Epstein, great to meet you, you know, the first thing he was going to say wasn't going to be, well, actually, it's pronounced Epstein and, you know, draw attention to his Jewish name. He's like, oh, OK, fine. And move on, you know. So mm -hmm. so I think there are a number of reasons why he didn't correct people. Who knows? Maybe he also didn't care that much. My name is Vivek. That's the correct way to pronounce it. People say Vivek. They say other things. And, you know, quite frankly, it doesn't offend me. It's okay. You know, like yeah. I care more about how people treat me than how they pronounce my name. So, you know, I, I suspect there were a number of reasons why here we are. And a lot of people think it's Epstein. But, you know, I, I would I would say maybe the authority on how to pronounce his last name would be his mom. And his mom says <laughs> Epstein. So there you go. That's yeah. how I'm going to say it. I'm going to respect the family. And, and and personally, I think we should do. I think people should call a family's last name the way the family says it's the right way to say it. So there you go. Lovely. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening with the book being adapted for television? Yeah. Uh, you know, un unfortunately, I can't say very much. Um, <laughs> you could probably find a lot of rumors out there and I'm going to be incredibly unhelpful and just say like some of the rumors are true, you know, it's uh, and basically what that means is like we are still very passionate about the idea of adapting it or passionate about adapting it um, as is widely reported something I'm very proud of we um, got approval from Paul Ringo, Yoko Ono and Olivia Harrison that paved the way to do a deal with Sony ATV to have access to Beatles music. Um, very proud of that. And we are very keen to um, to see this project through. You know, it's been a long and winding road to use a Beatles uh, line. Um, although people who have experience in in um, you know in entertainment development will will know that ten years it's actually not that long. It, it is on the longer side, but it's actually not that long um, to get a you know a beloved project off the ground. So, is it taking longer than I hoped? It certainly is. Um, but I, we have not abandoned those dreams. Uh, and, um, you know, this was a turbulent year, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, 2023, there was a writer's strike. There was an actor's For strike. Sure. It was a very difficult year to move a, a film or TV project forward. So it's, um, you know, things are, things are still happening and I'm still very, um, very bullish on it, but, uh, I've tried in my career to not say things unless they are real. You know, I, I didn't yeah on music until we actually had a deal in hand. You know, I don't talk about actors being in discussions with to play the role. I will tell you when so-and-so is signed on to play the role. For sure. So mm -hmm. as such, I'd rather not comment on the discussions and the rumors, but um, but stay tuned. If I can actually promote, I will say, you know, Fifth Beatle can be found uh, on um, on Twitter, or which I guess is X now, at, at Fifth Beatle. We're on Instagram, <laughs> we're on Facebook. I'm also personally on at, Viv at Vivek J. Tiwari, also on Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. Um, so please stay in touch with us. And that's where you will, you know, as soon as we have firm, reliable news to announce, we will. Um, so that that's the thing that I will say. Excellent. That's great. Okay. And the new edition will be out in time for the holidays. Yes. Comes out on November 21st. Um, and if you will awesome. also indulge me, you know, if I learned anything from Brian, it was, it's promote your wares. Um, <laughs> I mentioned that it has a, you know, this playlist soundtrack that I'm very proud of, but it also has a new cover. 
um, by two amazing artists that were handpicked by um, by Andrew Robinson, the, the core artist of the book, picked awesome. Chris Brunner and Rico Renzi to kind of honor his artwork and do something fresh with it. So, so I'm very excited about that. And it has a new introduction written by Kelly Curtis, who was the longtime manager of Pearl Jam and Mother Love Bone before them. Mm -hmm. Kelly is also a bit of a hero of mine. And mm -hmm. Kelly, you know, said that Brian Epstein was somebody that was a hero of his and that he, you know, when he went, not, not unlike my experience, he, he saw the Beatles as a kid and said wow. like everybody wanted to be the Beatles, but he wanted to be Brian mm -hmm. Epstein. And so he wrote That's this fantastic. amazing introduction and, and I'm very proud of that. So there's a lot of things in this new edition that, um, that I think if you're not coming to the, to, the, to the book for the first time, if you're an old fan, um, I really do believe that we that it's um, we're not squeezing an extra dollar out of you if you're a collector. We've actually, you know, because I'm a comic book fan too, and I'm I'm very sensitive to that. You know, I, I do think we've um, we've created something that that is has some some interesting and cool new stuff. So please check that out. Yay! I'm excited too. Thank, Thank you, you very very much. It's been Thank so you. nice talking to you, Vivek. Great speaking to you as well. This was Real awesome. Pleasure. My favorite thing to do, as you can probably tell, is to babble on and on about Brian and the Fifth Beatle. So, so thank you for having amazing, me. Amazing, amazing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>